Uh, we are continuing our series in uh, the Ten Commandments uh, today on the sixth word of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and if you're more familiar with the Bible, you know that these Ten Commandments, these ten words were the kind of foundation of the moral law for Israel. And then Jesus said a lot about them too when, when he was here on earth in person. Um, and specifically, this is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, back in, back in Jesus' day, it was a rabbi's job to kind of interpret the law, the Torah, and explain what it meant for us, God's people, in, as we tried to follow God. And, and this is what Jesus does in the portion of Scripture we're going to read from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he says, uh, you have heard it said, blank, but I say to you, blank. So he's saying, you've heard it interpreted this way, but now I'm telling you this is what it means. And we should take note because this is a bit like the author of the book telling you about the meaning of the book, right? So that's the interpretation that really matters. So listen for that as we're reading uh, from Matthew 5. Um, yeah, so let's, re let's read that. The sixth word from the Ten Commandments and then Matthew uh, chapter 5. So Exodus 20 verse 13, very simply, you shall not murder. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21, this is Jesus speaking. You have, heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So series in Ten Commandments, I, f I feel like we need uh, the continual reminder as, as we're looking at these as Christians that uh, it's always grace first. It's always grace first. It always has been grace first. Look at what God said right before he gave the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The law came after the grace. There's no way you can obey the law enough, well enough, better than you are now to earn the grace. The grace always comes first. It's always a gift. So that's, that's the frame for us thinking about the Ten Commandments, right? The simple frame. And the Ten Commandments very much apply to us. Uh, the, the Reformers cl clarified this and I think what is a very helpful way. For Christians, how, does, how do the Ten Commandments apply to us? They still are the foundation of our moral law, but specifically, they show us our need for a savior. They restrain evil in society as they are the basis of much of our civil law in society even today. And three, they guide us in grateful living. 
Remember, Jesus said, I've, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. I uh, See, this, this is a guide not only to live in a way that pleases God, but in a way that avoids all the pitfalls of the world, that cooperates with the grain of the universe, if you will, and, and helps us to live in a way that is a, a path of flourishing life. So the Ten Commandments for us, grace first, and this is the role it plays for us. Now, if, if we had read through all of the Ten Commandments this morning and uh, just read them one by one down the list, we would notice a stark change when we get to the sixth word. Because with, with this one, that, you know, there's no explanation, there's no kind of rationale given for why this is, there's no um, uh, warning of um, what happened if you, if you might disobey it, no promise of a blessing if you choose to obey it. It's just simple, direct, and very short. You shall not murder. And in the Hebrew, believe it or not, it's even shorter than that. Just two words. The word for murder or the taking of innocent life in Hebrew and then the word in Hebrew that makes it a negative. That, like our word not, not, right? So the, the commandment simply reads, not murder. Done. But what, what do we... What do we do with that? Right, like how, how, do we, how do we unpack that? Uh, one, one of the resources I found really helpful in planning this series is a book by Jen Wilkins. And I think I fessed up early on in the series that I found her chapter titles so helpful that we're using those as the sermon titles in this series. So we're grateful for her, her book. Uh, she, uh, in that book, she mentions this old uh, kind of reality TV show called Super Nanny. Anybody remember Super Nanny? What, what a crazy reality show. And, and who would have thought it would have skyrocketed and become so popular, right? It, if you're not familiar with it, uh, Super Nanny followed the exploits of British nanny Joe Frost as she went into the homes of other people. Largely, it, it seemed, homes where the parents had largely kind of relinquished control and the kids were driving the bus and the parents were being taken for a ride, right? And she came in and just in her very prim, proper British way was like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, boom, boom, done, <laughs> right? Like, whoa, how did that um, I, I don't know how you experienced this. I think a lot of people watch that show for self-validation, meaning like we weren't watching it for, for parenting tips. We were watching it because we're kind of like, well, I know I'm really screwed up, but at least I'm not that bad. Right? That was a train wreck, at least, man. So, you know, uh, the sixth commandment can be a little like that. You know, I'm, I'm, man, I'm pretty messed up, but hey, at least I haven't killed anybody, so I'm, I'm good. Well, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger than that. Right? The, the Heidelberg Catechism asks a very fine question. Uh, there are three questions and answers in the, in the catechism regarding the sixth commandment. The first question is this, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? Great question. What does this mean for us as Christians? What, what would God hope for us in this, in this sixth commandment? So to answer that, um, I wanna look at just what the commandment, what, what it doesn't prohibit and what it prohibits in kind of the Old Testament context. And then how this commandment speaks specifically to a cultural issue of our day. And then also how Jesus explained it. How, how he explained the meaning of this thing. So first, what the commandment uh, prohibits. So, some read this commandment and think 
uh, assume really that it prohibits all killing. Uh, and you might be surprised to find that that is not actually accurate. Uh, the Hebrew word used here is the word for murder, specifically the taking of innocent life. And that's very different from the Hebrew word uh, that means to kill. And the, the, the Hebrew word for murder only occurs a very few times in the Bible, but the word to kill occurs all, all over the place. So the sixth word does not in and of itself prohibit the killing of any human being. What it prohibits is the taking of innocent human life where, where there's no guilt associated to it. And this is, this is made clear through the Old Testament. You can do a, a real deep dive here like if you're reading through the law, but let me give you the executive summary. The sixth commandment does not prohibit killing other people in self-defense. It doesn't prohibit capital punishment, nor does it prohibit just wars. And you can unpack that biblically, right? Uh, the, the piece about self-defense, there's, there's a very interesting thing in the law that says if somebody invades your home a, a during, during night, you can defend yourself. But if the sun has risen and you kill the invader, meaning if somebody else could see that that use of force was inappropriate, then you'll be held accountable for that. So there's tremendous level of detail in the Bible about this. So in general, the sixth commandment does not prohibit those things. What it does prohibit is this, premeditated murder, unpremeditated murder, or what we might call voluntary manslaughter. It's not like you thought it up beforehand, but in anger, struck out, and someone else died because of that. Um, and negligent homicide. Um, um, the, the example given in the Old Testament is if you own an ox and your ox kills someone, well, you need to kill the ox and not eat the meat because there was probably something wrong with it. Uh, but if you own an ox and it has killed some animals, it has been used to goring other animals, and then it kills a person, well, then the ox and the owner are to be killed because it, it was a foreseeable problem and you did not act so as to protect human life. So we see then that the sixth commandment prohibits much more than just cold-blooded premeditated murder. It prohibits killing or causing to be killed by direct action or inaction any legally innocent person. So thanks to that commentator for that summary. So that's, that's the technical stuff. Um, but what does it mean for Christians living in our, in our culture today? Like how do you apply this? And, and today I want to talk directly about abortion because it is clearly in the national news with the Supreme Court decision and kind of what that, what that means for the country and for, uh, for us as Christians living in the country. Uh, an author named Larry Hurtado has written a book called Destroyer of the Gods. And it, it's a wonderful little book about how the early church was distinct from the culture it, in which it lived. And many people back in that day kind of thought the early Christians were kind of weird and out of step with how things worked. Um, and one of the ways the early church was distinct from the culture around it was the way that it valued the life of newborns and children in the womb. And the value for early Christians and Jewish people of that day was way higher for those children than, than the Roman culture. Because the, the prevailing Roman culture of that day uh, uh, saw is very acceptable to simply discard a baby once it was born if you didn't want it. And back in that day, sons were considered much more valuable than daughters. 
So speculation is that many, many uh, just newborn uh, little girls were simply taken to the trash dump. This is what they would do. They wouldn't kill the child, but they would leave the child at the dump, expose it to the elements, and the child would die at, at, the, trash, at the trash dump. Uh, infant exposure is what it was called. So uh, this, this is where there was a very stark breaking of ways uh, between the culture and the early church. There's, there's a written summary of a kind of Christian teaching and doctrine. It's, it's not from the Bible. It's called the Didache. And it's the earliest writing we have outside of Scripture that summarizes kind of the teaching of the Bible and the ethical implications for early followers of Jesus. Uh, it, it's called the Didache, but it's also alt- alternatively called the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. So it's, it's kind of a, a treasure of a little... Uh, resource. The Didache on this simply says, with regard to this prevailing issue in Roman culture, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. So for, for those early followers of Jesus, neither abortion, which was also practiced, nor infant exposure was an option. They were both considered to be contrary to God's will. And again, I, I mentioned Jewish people of, of that day believed that same thing. That wasn't unique only to the Christians, but the Jewish folks believed that too because they saw it as a violation of the sixth commandment, this high value of life. And again, the, the authors of that day, the culture of that day, thought this was really weird. Like, why, so why wouldn't you discard your unwanted baby? It, they just couldn't fathom this. So wh- why did the Jews and early Christians believe this? Like, what's the, what's the meat behind it? Because God, as revealed in the Old Testament and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is a God of life from, from the very beginning to the very end. Right? God, according to the story of Scripture, God created life. And when humanity in our disobedience uh, kind of veered away from the path of life and following God, right away, God started taking action to to call us back to a fullness of life in him. And the whole redemptive story of the Bible is about God's action on our behalf to call us back into a life-giving relationship with him, which we were created, in which we were created to live, right? And he, he came in Jesus to save us from death and to give us life, to give us not just life here and now until we die to this life, but to give us eternal life. Jesus, again, said, I've come that they might have life, and, and have it to the full. So in the Bible, it's just very clear God is all about life from beginning to end. And, and th- think about physical life, all physical life. You know, God creates life. Uh, no, no life comes into being without God calling it into being. Even, even an ant, right? I mean, th- think about how miraculous this is. No creature in the universe has the power to create life. Creatures are created by a creator. And what distinguishes a creature from a thing, uh, an animate uh, a being from an inanimate object, is the miracle of life. From ant to human. Uh, no one to this day can explain scientifically what that is. The, the line between life and, and death. 
I, I love the way a commentator on the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. There's something sacred about the life of all living beings, according to the Bible. Originally, God did not give us the right to use animals for food. He made that concession after the flood. Even then, the blood of an animal is not for human consumption because a creature's life is in its blood. The killing of an animal is always somewhat unnatural in the Bible, not the way it was originally designed to be, right? While in the Bible, life itself is sacred, human life has a unique value and unique protection. When someone murders a human being, that person destroyed a likeness of God because you know, we've been created in the image of God. Uh, so in, in the Ten Commandments, the first four are about our relationship with God. The fifth commandment is about our relationship with authority in the world. And then the last five are about our relationships with one another. It's no coincidence that the very first command about our relationships with one another is not murder. Because that, that would represent... Uh, the, the clearest breach of an understanding of how human beings have been made. Uh, or in common talk, you know, don't take innocent life because the realm of life and death is way above our pay grade. Way above our pay grade. So that's why for followers of Jesus today, abortion is off the table. Aborting a baby is not an ethical option for a follower of Jesus, not a God-honoring choice. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about extreme medical situations or the, you know, unthinkable uh, ethical dilemmas. That are, I mean, there's got to be, you know, room in here to talk. W- what I'm addressing is simply, uh, you know, a pregnancy, oops, let's make this go away. That's not okay, according to the Bible. Um, As Christians, we can't just be angry about that either. We can't be the people just like yelling, right? Back to the early church for a moment. When people dropped off their unwanted babies at the trash dump, uh, there were profiteers at work in the day too who would go around and collect some of those babies. They would raise them as their own only to sell them into slavery or worse yet, the sex trade. So the early Christians, right, the concept of God, God came to, God gives life, God came to redeem our life in Jesus and to rescue us from slavery. Then they looked over at the city dump and saw this whole, this whole thing going on and they said, we've got to do something. So what do they do? They went to the dump and picked up the unwanted babies and they took them home and raised them as their own. They modeled the self-giving love of Jesus. Rather than saying, hey, you shouldn't, they said, what can I do? And, and the challenge in our day is staggering. And I, you know, as Christians, as followers of Christ, the Supreme Court decision, I don't, that, in my mind, that simply just means a beginning to our work Right? I feel like there's a lot more to do now than before that, that decision. 
And, and the challenge is staggering. People have a real hard time tracking the number of abortions that happen in our country. But in 2019, the CDC reported that there were 629,898 abortions in the United States alone. So let's weigh this out, right? In our news today, mass shootings and the travesty of that, the loss of life. In 2019, according to the statistics from the CDC, there were 1,725 children killed per day in our country. So, we can't be the people who say, oh, that's horrible, look at them. We have to be the people who say, what can we do? What, what can we do? You know, how can I help? And I, I don't know if you've sensed this. I, I think I have, in, in, at least in the way it's portrayed in the national press. It seems ironically some really angry Christians, uh, at least from my perspective, could be in the position of living in disobedience to the sixth commandment as they oppose abortion uh, because of their, their, the level of contempt in the conversation, right? So it's just so ironic. I mean, like you're, you're living an act of disobedience of the very commandment you're trying to defend <laughs> and you're missing the point entirely. And, and that's, that gets to how Jesus expanded. Uh, well, he didn't expand it. It's always meant this. He just explained it to us in, in more fullness because again, you know, when the author of the book tells you what the book means, you listen up, right? Here, here's what Jesus said again. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, I don't know about you, that wakes me up. Anybody who's angry? I mean, what, what do I do? I mean, sometimes anger just happens, right? I mean, anger is an, uh, an emotion that one experiences. It, it's not like you can control when or whether you feel angry. But gladly, that's not what Jesus is talking about. The, the original language is very clear on this. Jesus isn't talking about the feeling of anger. He's talking about our response to it. Specifically, if once the little, once the little campfire of anger gets lit, it's whether we try to throw a bucket of water on it or a bucket of gasoline on it. That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying is if you throw the gasoline on it, nurse it, foster it, help it burn brighter and bigger, that's a spiritual problem. Here's what he said, but I tell you, if we, if we Put what Jesus said with that understanding, it could be like this. But I tell you that anyone who nurses a grudge with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You know, again, there's a reason the first commandment about how we honor one another is you shall not murder. Remember back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 records the fall when we departed uh, following God. The very next chapter, chapter 4, records the world's first murder when Cain killed his brother Abel. And, and the lesson is that apart from God's life-giving presence, we quickly devolve into life-taking violence. So apart from God, we lose track of the value of human life, right? 
And here's how it happened. Because Cain's first thought was not, huh, I think I'm going to kill my brother today. It's never somebody's first thought. Uh, But you, you have experienced in this life the exact same spiritual pattern that Cain did. I know I have. And this is the pattern that Jesus was talking about, the the pattern that he was warning about. Remember what what God said to Cain. He said, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So this idea of the kind of the predatory nature of something that wants to get its claws into us, right? Right? I think this is what God was talking about when he talked about the sin crouching at the door. It's this spiritual pattern that, that can experience, that you and I have experienced, and we continue to experience. And it's this, this continuum. It starts with frustration. It then leads to anger, which then leads to bitterness, which then leads to contempt. And when you live in contempt with, towards someone, right, you, you've devalued them to the point where you're seeing them as less human. And then that just justifies violence. If not physical, then violence of words, violence of heart, violence of spirit. See, we experience frustration or hurt, which unresolved grows into anger, which unaddressed leads to bitterness, which unchecked leads to contempt, which unrestrained leads to violence in a variety of forms. And this is why Jesus gave us a template for handling frustrations and conflicts. It's in Matthew 18. If you haven't read that recently, you should. Here's how it begins. If your brother or sister sins against you, go to them, tell them what they did wrong, keep it between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them back. Right? So the, so the responsibility in navigating interpersonal relationships rests on the one who felt offended, primarily. Now, if we know we offended somebody, we should go to them too. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But, but the problem is, if we don't know we offended someone and the person who felt offended never says anything, then this spiritual pattern can begin to grow if allowed to, right? I, I, I have in my mind such a vivid memory of a good friend of mine in Iowa at a church I served there, a, a really successful guy, just a brilliant man by, by all worldly standards, doing great, uh, business person, just on the ball. Um, And there was a a message on forgiveness that happened at that that church. And he called me and said, hey, John, can we talk about this? I have have a challenge here. And he came in and just shared a little bit about the family story. And there was a brother that he had, a younger brother, who had really wronged him in a very, really hard way. Like, it was hard. It was not easy. And I remember he had the the whole time we were talking, we were sitting at a little round table on my desk and he had a, there was just a blank piece of paper and he had a pen in his hand. And as he was talking, he was just doodling. And as he started to talk about his brother, his pen started going harder. And the anger was just, you know, I mean, you can envision that. And when he got done, the whole, there was a big, big, big blob of black right in the middle of his page. And, and at the end, we, we talked all through forgiveness and what Christians think about that and how if you don't, you know, not forgiving somebody is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, right? It's just bad for you. So don't let that person have that level of control over you, you know, that kind of thing. But his final word as we, were, as we left, he said, I just 
can't forgive him. Yeah, you can. You just won't. That's what Jesus is talking about. Gladly, the gospel is still true, right? Uh, We can't do this in our own strength, under our own power. There there simply is no way. Uh, Jesus knew this when he gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't giving us another checklist of things we need to obey to be right with God. He was describing the kingdom kind of life that's possible in Christ when we yield our hearts to the Lord. And, and we remember this whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper up here. Um, remember remember the, the words of the liturgy. They, they say this, we come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law. You can read the rest of it there, but that, that to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law. So the, the, what makes the gospel good news is that Jesus did this for us, right? Jesus obeyed the 10 words perfectly, never veered from them. And, and as another author has put it, in Christ, Uh, the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus is applied to us. It's grace first, right? And we live in God's grace and we grapple with God's ongoing work in our lives that we might be more and more like Jesus, that our lives might look more and more like Jesus was living our life in our place, right? That's what's at stake here. And this is all possible only because the one who created the world and gave the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, came to earth in person to be murdered for the very murderers who would murder him. That's the depth of the grace. See, Jesus laid down his innocent life for the blood of those who took innocent life. That's grace. You know, it went through my mind at the beginning when I was talking about super nanny and all that and the, hey, at least I haven't killed anybody, I'm good. That might, might not be true for all of us. Maybe intentionally you took another life. Maybe unintentionally you've taken another life. And there's just guilt. There's grace for that. There's grace. It's grace first. And, and I know for a fact in the whole abortion conversation there can be boatloads of guilt all over the place. I can't count the number of conversations I've had about that. There's grace. There is grace for us in Christ. Right? So if you haven't, the response is turn to Jesus. He is good. He actually is who he claimed to be. Uh, he, following him doesn't make life easy, but it's a much better way to live than not because you don't have to hide anymore. So believe the good news like Jesus said. Repent, change your thinking. Believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Because of Christ's life-giving act, we who follow him are not merely to refrain from taking life 
but to be those who stand in this world to protect life, to speak life-giving words over others, to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers, and esteem builders in others. Right? The sixth command instructs us to seek reconciliation wherever we know there's a rub. That's what the sixth word means for us. May the Lord help us and give us courage to honor life in every way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.